0: Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Okay, welcome to the 11th encounter of the Bullshit Artists. I'm Rory Verado here with Jack Crittenden. How are you doing, Jack? Doing well, Rory. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm great. Good to see you. Um, Before we get underway, I just want to make a couple quick announcements to listeners. First, some of you may have noticed that the video version of the podcast has disappeared uh, from YouTube. There are several reasons from that. First of all, it was the lowest viewed format. So people tend to gravitate towards audio. And then secondly, uh, you know, producing the video is a pain in the ass for me. And given that it had low viewership, I said, fuck it (laughs) and uh, and discarded it. So if if ever, uh, you know, I get ambitious, maybe I'll bring it back. But otherwise, audio is the way to go. Secondly, um, Jack is going to be taking a little. I guess we'd call it a podcast sabbatical, uh, in August. And so will we'll be off for, you know, the whole month of August and I'll be moving back to New York at the end of August. So there may be about, you know, five, six weeks without an episode, um, which will give all of you time to catch up on the hours upon hours of our bloviating that you missed previously. So with all that said, let's get underway. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to just start with, I mean, we have all those issues that we were talking about last encounter, and I'm sure some of those strands will, uh, you know, reassert themselves throughout our conversation. But, uh, you know, I was reviewing some of your work, Jack, and thinking about some things lately. And and one thing that maybe we haven't touched on much in the podcast and maybe that people don't know is, is about your interest in. Um, the afterlife and near-death studies and things of this nature, the paranormal, and how your interest has really turned to that, I think, in recent years uh, in a pretty robust way. And it's fascinating to me also for a variety of reasons. One of the things that I was looking at recently involved your explanation of a case that I think, if I understand, you've written about it, I believe, in in your book, Stalking White Crows. But I think it's a case, maybe the case, that you find personally most compelling for proving or at least providing evidence beyond a reasonable doubt for the existence of human, personal human consciousness after death. And that is the case of Pam Reynolds, I believe is her name, who was a woman that was undergoing, I think, surgery for a brain aneurysm and was completely knocked out cold, including um, having tape, her eyes taped shut and things like this. But nevertheless, during her surgery, she was able, or after her surgery, I guess, she was able to recount specific details of the experience in the operating room during her surgery in such a way that would have been impossible had she not had some sort of, I guess, um, you know, extra bodily awareness of the room so that's my setup for the pam reynolds case maybe you can elaborate a little further and 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 tell me whether that is the case that you find most persuasive so people
1: who have been listening to the podcast know that i excuse me i am older than you uh by what did we say i think we established this by Four, 39 years i think 40 yeah, years so I almost ju- two two generations
0: i just turned 33 actually on monday so okay. you now you forgot my birthday thanks asshole yeah too bad
1: yeah hey, bad. and uh, <laughs> and going forward that's not going to change <laughs> like my, my memory will not be getting better although i could no. make a note of it so what's the date what's the date of your birthday
0: july 19th now you
1: hear that listeners july 19th there you go I expect okay. presence um, and praise. So I'm gonna make a note of that so I'll know from now on. You won't be getting anything other than my my well wishes. When it's is yours there...
0: exactly? I should note as well.
1: Cinco de Mayo.
0: Oh, okay. Cool. So anyway, A5. you're 39 years older than me, I think.
1: Uh no, no, no. Rory.
0: <laughs> Did I do the math I? wrong?
1: Hang on, you just turned 33? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I'm 39 years older. So almost two generations. Okay. If generation is is 20 years. Right. So our youngest son is your age. You're a year older than you. Okay. Uh, I mentioned that because I wouldn't want listeners to think that as I slip deeper into my dotage that uh, (laughs) I've taken on this afterlife interest as something that um, I need to prepare myself for. Of course, I'm reminded, as you know, that in it wasn't the Theaetetus. I'm not sure which, oh, it may have been the Phaedo. I'm not, I can't remember where Socrates says that the purpose of studying philosophy is to prepare, practice and prepare for death.
0: Yeah, that's the Phaedo, yep.
1: It's the Phaedo, okay. Um, so those of you who, have, who are interested in philosophy, have been studying philosophy or want to study philosophy, just know that it's nothing but a preparation for death. So I've been taking that literally, uh, for a number of years and it began i won't give too much of the backstory unless rory encourages me to do this <laughs> it began because our middle son who is a screenwriter in hollywood and is now 36 um, when he was around 10 his older brother heard him crying in his room around midnight one night now, if you're, if you're a 10-year-old and you're crying in your room and there's nobody around, uh, something, you've either done something to yourself or there's something going on. It isn't, it isn't usually something that, that occurs. So anyway, my uh, older son heard him, our oldest son heard him and went in and said, what, what are you doing? And he said, uh, I'm afraid to die. And my oldest son said, suck it up you fucking baby uh you're 10 years old so anyway the next the the next morning at breakfast my uh our oldest son narked on his on his brother and said todd was crying in bed he's afraid to die boo-hoo and uh i didn't want to lie to him and give him some comforting words like oh don't worry we'll all be together in heaven uh because he said, well, what happens when I die? And I said to him, I don't know. So I thought I should have something to say beyond I don't know. Uh, and other that, other than say, you know, suck it up, you fucking baby, or I'm gonna call a priest. Uh, so I started sort of looking at it, looking at this idea All right, he's 36 now, he was 10 then, that's 26 years have passed. You would figure after 26 years, I better have something to say beyond I don't know, having looked into this. And as Rory mentioned, I have a chapter in my book, Stalking White Crows, one of the first two chapters, in fact, which are devoted to scientific studies of life after death, the evidence for life after death. This is not a a new phenomenon. I mean, the scientific investigations of life after death is, Uh, are nothing new this has been going on well we can trace it back to the myth of ur in the republic
0: (laughs) yes at least Uh,
1: yeah where where ur is a uh soldier who has died in battle allegedly died in battle and they he's on the funeral pyre as the bodies are about to be burnt and he wakes up and goes oh hang on i'm not ready for this yet and, and tells the tale of what life is like in the afterlife, because he has had what is now in the literature called a near-death experience. Okay. But for our purposes, it might be important for listeners to know that at the turn of the century, from the 19th to the 20th centuries, there was a, a flock of well-regarded scientists exploring uh, paranormal or parapsychological phenomenon, sometimes called psi phenomena. Um, and we're talking about Nobel Prize winners. We're talking about Sir Oliver Lodge in England, who uh, had something to do with creating transistors, I think, I can't remember exactly. Uh, William James in our country, uh, but uh, just a, a host of well-regarded scientists who wanted to look to see if there was some scientific basis for any of this. And they did extensive experiments some of which are very impressive but of course nothing came of it other than the creation of the british and american societies for the study of 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 psychical research which in itself is important because that's still extant all right but that doesn't have anything to do with pam reynolds (laughs) um other than (laughs) other than pam reynolds is within the literature the scientific literature on this is considered to be uh an important if not a classic case now since the the turn from the beginning of the 20th century to now the beginnings of the 21st century there is just a plethora of websites and research uh studies going on in studies of reincarnation near-death experiences um mediumship readings uh what are they called, direct, direct voice phenomenon, I think it's called. There are all, there are all sorts of studies going on, mm. which, which I separate from ghost, you know, chasing ghosts and doing remote viewing, which are okay, but I'm not really interested in any of that. So if you go on the web and start looking, um, as I said, there, there are a lot of places you can look. If you're look, interested in, in mediumship, there's a place called the Windbridge Institute, uh, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I should mention that I am on the board of directors. Uh, that, that, that Julie Beischel, who has her PhD in, in toxicology and pharmacology, is a serious scientist. She decided to look in this for her personal reasons, but she created this, this uh, research center called the Winbridge Research Center, where she has certified, I think, two dozen mediums, put, through the, th- put them through all sorts of tests. She runs quintuple blind studies, where everybody is blinded, everything, nobody knows anything, and they're getting uh, impressive readings from mediums, accurate readings. It, it's pretty interesting. And again, this is in the Stalking White Crows business.
0: Is this institute in Arizona? I forget. It's in, yes, Tucson? it's in Tucson.
1: Okay. She was the first William James Fellow at the University of Arizona, uh. where she worked with a guy named Gary Schwartz, who is a uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, I believe, Uh, well-trained, spent years at Harvard or Yale, I can't remember, came out to Arizona, set up a lab. She worked with him for a couple of years. He's got some books out. Again, his name is Gary Schwartz. And she felt that his protocols weren't rigid enough, weren't stringent enough. So she created her own and and branched out off on her own, started this research center. Mm. So if you're interested in the accuracy of mediums, and you want to demonstrate and you want to have it demonstrated to you that this is more than what's called cold reading, where they just ask these blanket questions and and get and make general statements that, you know, is there somebody here? Oh, there's somebody in your family with a letter R there. Letter R. That's not that people are giving precise names, personality descriptions, causes of death. It's pretty interesting. OK, that that's mediumship. For me, the one that I find most compelling is. Uh, are the near-death experiences. People who have come close to death have been described uh, as clinically dead, but yet are revived somehow. In Holland, also known as the Netherlands, why it's called one over the other, I have no idea. But there is a doctor, Pim van Lummel, uh, who is a cardiologist who began to hear from his patients when he, they had been resuscitated that uh, they had had some experiences while they were dead. Now he found this to be pretty startling. Uh, you won't be surprised to hear Rory and listeners that most uh, medical doctors in this country and around the world know very little about any of these experiences. They're not trained to probe into these experiences. They don't ask about them. They don't care about them. And most of them think they can't happen.
0: Right And we might even I, we might even go so far as to say that like uh, interest in what would we call it just paranormal things, the largest umbrella is like actively, you know stamped out in, among most medical professionals and probably medical schools. Like it's that, you right, know, yeah. it's, it's, it's not, not even, uh, supported yeah. and if you're interested in it, you tend to be thought of as being weird or whatever, although that's changing now, I think slowly slowly yeah it
1: but it's still not anything you would ever find taught in a medical school no one is preparing future cardiologists to ask their patients upon resuscitation did you have any experiences but that's happening but anyway to his credit this uh dutch cardiologist pim van lummel set up a an experiment across holland 11 hospitals in holland where he asked Cardiologists, fellow cardiologists, to ask their patients, and he's written it up in a book. I I don't remember the title. I can I can barely remember the titles of my own books, uh, but it's Pim P I M Van V A N Lummel L uh, O M M E L. If you're interested in that, okay. but This brings us to Pam Reynolds, who, as Rory described, was a woman uh, who was brought into the Barrow Neurological Institute in phoenix because she had a brain aneurysm if you know anything about brain aneurysms they kill like 98 percent of the people who have them uh the, the the i don't know i don't think there's much you can do about it but what the barrow institute pioneered was a process where you cool the patient down to something like 60 degrees fahrenheit i may get the exact temperature wrong but at that temperature, you can then drain all of the blood out of the body, including the head. And with the blood absent from the brain, you can then remove the aneurysm surgically. And so this is what was happening with Pam Reynolds. As Roy described, she was brought into the operating room. She, her, she was given uh, some anesthesia uh, before the sur- obviously before the surgery began but she's rolled in, and she's already a little out of it. Uh, they put clickers in her ears that were that were registering at ninety-five decibels, which is the equivalent of a jackhammer out in the street or a subway coming into a into a subway stop. Pretty damn loud. Yeah, very loud. Yeah. And the purpose of the clickers is to see how the brain reacts to the clicking and by the time the brain has stopped reacting at all and that means throughout the entire brain all the way down to the brain stem then they know that consciousness is completely lost because the brain
0: is is for all purposes dead because it because it's not reacting it's not showing any reactivity to this you know siren going off in somebody's ear right
1: none so Rory mentioned her eyes are taped shut. She's got the clickers going on. She's been given an anesthetic. She's given more anesthetic. And then a couple of hours before the, they're going to drain all the blood when they sufficiently cool her body, because she's already fully anesthetized, they can begin the operation and they drill into her head with a bone saw in, in preparation for uh, then operating on, this, on the brain to remove the aneurysm. Accompanying the the surgeon is another surgeon who is inserting a catheter uh, through her groin. The problem was that the catheter, her, her veins, Pam Reynolds veins on the right side or the left side, I can't remember, were too small. And so the surgeon announces to the, uh, head surgeon, literally the head surgeon, uh, <laughs> her veins are too small i'm going to go to the other side he goes okay that's fine and and proceeds then to to dig into her groin on the other side well pam reynolds hears this now keep in mind her brain has already demonstrated that she's brain dead All
0: Right. so got no blood in her body basically no, no
1: blood in her body uh now it's okay so how is she forming experience how is she having an experience now her version of this is that at some point maybe when the sawing began in her head she describes it as popping out of her body and she lit on the shoulder of dr spetzler who's the surgeon doing the brain
0: work Okay, so you're saying, sorry to interrupt, but it just I interrupt, yeah, anytime. Because one that's interesting to me, and I don't remember you writing about that in length in the book. But she, the way that she describes the experience, like she, first of all, sort of knew and was aware of like a leaving of her body, and then also that what we might call her consciousness or whatever relocates itself such that she now has a she's situated in a different location her her sort of perception is situated from a different location so that is that accurate and does she does she talk about that at all like what because i had to be disorienting i would think or maybe it was too abrupt or the whole thing was a fugue you know so right right well so that that's one possible pushback that she was in a
1: fugue state, but you're absolutely right. She's not describing this as something she is aware of happening uh, or something she's heard while she's lying down. She has the perspective of looking over the surgeon's shoulder at her own head being drilled into and hearing this, this uh, other surgeon say, talk about the problem with the small vein and needing to move to the other side, which Pam Reynolds says uh, upon recovery but she found that surprising because she just thought she was having her brain operated on. She had no idea anything was going to be going on down at her in her groin. So, yes, so she has this new perspective. She never described it as scary. In fact, she describes it as freeing, as liberating. Mm-hmm. So she pops out of her head. And, and I don't remember if she if she said she then became aware of the sound or whether she thinks the sound popped her out of her head but Pam Reynolds was a musician and she described the sound of the saw as a natural D, but it was a guttural sound. This is her word, guttural and, um, uh, irritating, unpleasant. So she hears the sound. She suddenly realizes she's out of her body. She's looking over the surgeon's shoulder. She sees her body down there or her head down there. Here's this conversation going on. Uh, and they surprised because the saw looks like she describes it as a toothbrush or a pencil. It's very small, high speed, apparently, more like a dentist drill, perhaps, than what you would think of as a bone saw. I mean, it's not really a bone saw. Maybe it's just called a skull drill. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> but she was surprised at its size. Now, push back on that. She could have f- feigned... Not knowing about it, but had researched it earlier because she was interested. In what kind of saw they're going to be using to drill into my head? Right, she oh, did have
0: an incentive, perhaps, to do some research. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. How big is the hole going to be? My God, what are they going to do? Saw off, a, you know, a section of my head like a piece of cantaloupe and pop <laughs> it off. Uh, so yes, yeah, she had some incentive, but she claims she was surprised. Now there was a another uh, doctor. Sabom. I'm not sure he was a cardiologist. I'm not sure what his, what his medical profession is, but he's another physician. He confesses that he too was surprised at her description because he had never seen this kind of surgical uh, drill. So, he, So maybe there's some more credibility to what she was saying. Anyway, she goes on to describe having a body, that she has hands, she can see her hands, she's aware that she is herself and that she is looking around and hearing things and watching this operation go on All right now uh then she has an otherworldly experience where she goes off to what we would call the afterlife where she meets with her grandmother who's obviously deceased and maybe some other relatives and has some exchanges there. Now, just for the purposes of background on this research, there are characteristics of these near-death experiences that seem to be almost universal and that's universal across cultures and across time. So if you go back to the myth of Ur or you go to uh, Hungary or you go to Taiwan, you're going to, and people are exper- experiencing near-death experiences, they're gonna be descri- describing them in very much the same way. And this going to another place, which Pam Reynolds describes as a, a place of great beauty, uh, colors, vibrant colors, that w- way more real than what we have here. Uh, sights, sounds, smells, her senses are all alive. And she's seeing this as she says repeatedly with total clarity. So it's, uh, as you hear near-death experiences explain this, it is more real than our reality. It's sharper. Your senses are much more acute. It's just better. So the elements are leaving the body. Sometimes people go through through a tunnel to a light. They meet relatives. There is some kind of life review. There are beings of various kinds there's light of various kinds and then at some point they're sent back almost to a person they say no no are you kidding this place is fabulous i don't want to go back uh, you have to me. go back you're not ready and they give it, get a shove which happened to Pam Reynolds. Mm-hmm. she got a shove and she was back in her body on the operating table uh okay so for the purposes of science because this was an operation that was new to the profession, or relatively new, draining the body of blood, reducing the body temperature, draining the body of blood, and then operating on the aneurysm, they were monitoring everything about this. So the first thought is, well, she was under anesthetized and that's how she was having these experiences. She wasn't, she was in almost a twilight state where things were happening. She could hear, uh, I, I've had uh, oral surgery more than once. And I was put into a twilight state where I couldn't feel anything, but I could respond to the, the dentist telling me to move my head, and do this or that.
0: Yeah, so, so you maybe had like some, some minimal awareness. Basically. Yeah, some
1: minimal awareness. So maybe she was in that state, but the cardiologist, uh, sorry, the anesthesiologist Uh, who reveals his name and this is an important element of the of these studies many of these stories don't have the uh, personnel the names of the personnel involved Mm. the medical staff the technicians and so you can't there's no follow-up so you're just going on the word of the person who had it had the experience Or there is some what's called veridical evidence, independently verified evidence of of something that occurred that the person couldn't have known was occurring. Maybe it occurred down the hall uh, outside the operating room. And there are cases of that where people have responded, here's a conversation that happened. Here's something I saw. And then it's verified. Yes, that was going on. Well, there's no way the patient could have known that because the patient was anesthetized on an operating table, not wandering down the hall 50 yards. Right. Anyway, so the first instance is Pam Reynolds was under anesthetized. Uh no, she wasn't. The anesthesiologist says that's completely false. We were monitoring everything. We knew exactly what what state she was in. And bear in mind her brain was not registering any of these clicks, and her eyes were taped shut. Right. So she's not hearing or seeing anything.
0: And her she has virtually no blood in her body, and her body temperature is in the 70s, you know, or maybe most. since
1: the 70s. I can't remember how low they they reduced it but she has yeah has no blood in her body certainly no blood in her brain and her right. brain isn't functioning now the interesting part of this is that the experience of uh, uh, rephrase that i shouldn't say the experience her description of popping out of the body seeing the the drilling of her head and the conversation from one doctor to another about the veins in her groin happened two hours before she was cool to the point where the blood could be drained from her body so her brain may have been compromised but it could also have been functional Mm. which means that she could have formed thoughts and experiences but then you have to add to that yes but she can't hear anything or see anything so how does, she, how does she know about this conversation? Well, the argument, the pushback is she was exercising what's called, as I mentioned before, psi phenomena. She was exercising telepathy. She was picking up the conversation from the two doctors. Or she was remote viewing the drilling in her head, the drilling of her head. So her brain is... Compromised but functional, so it's possible that she was exercising this psi phenomenon. She didn't pop out of her head; that was that was some other kind of experience, some other sort of hallucination she had.
0: Hmm. Now,
1: it turns out her husband, uh, in an interview, maybe some years later, said that that Pam Reynolds had exhibited some uh, psychic abilities. So there is that possibility.
0: But that, I mean, even if that is the case, then maybe it forecloses on the possibility of some out-of-body, near-death type experience, but it's still in the same wheelhouse. Like, it's still, you know, a psychic phenomena that's happening in a state of near-death. Like, right. you know, it's, uh, so, and my, in my opinion, it wouldn't be fatal like, it's not like that disproves the whole thing or whatever, you know, like if it was telepathy um, rather than uh, an complete out-of-body near-death experience. Right. I it's, would still find that fascinating, you know? Yeah,
1: it's, yes, it's at the very, yes, fascinating is one word. Spooky is another word. Uh, there, there's something extraordinary going on here because right. if she is reading minds telepathically, then clearly she's moved beyond what we understand to be brain function
0: right right? and there and i would think there might be good reason to you know suggest that what she was undergoing influenced her ability or at least her actualization of her latent ability to do that right yeah so you know it's these things are bound up but, but it's
1: more of an indication that regardless of whether you think she was dead clinically, mm-hmm. her consciousness is operating in a way that is unusual to say the least and inexplicable from the point of view of conventional science. Right? She's, she's remote viewing. Right. She's exercising clairvoyance. <laughs> she's seeing things not through her eyes, her physical right. eyes. She's hearing things not through her ears. right Th- something extraordinary is going on. So, so the, the dilemma then becomes that what what occurred when she was drained of the blood when her brain was completely non-functioning and her body and brain are dead. Well that's when she experienced the otherworldly uh, events. Mm-hmm. And because those don't have any veridical evidence, there's nothing independent that can be verified. It's just her view. This may not have happened at all. She may simply have made this up uh, when she came back in recovery, or maybe she had some latent feeling, who know about, uh, or uh, in the recovery room, maybe she had a dream and she thought
0: that that occurred,
1: but there's nothing, it's all subjective
0: right right so it's, that, yeah it's just her testimony essentially yeah.
1: and that's a discounting factor if you if you're looking for independent verification of what went on right but there's another element here and that is that when she was completely dead she had two experiences that cannot be accounted for one is that she heard the song hotel california by the eagles which was playing in the operating room, when she was, again, clinically dead, no brain function, no blood in her body. How is she <laughs> hearing? Now, Now, could that again be telepathy or some sort of clairvoyance, some sort of psi phenomenon? And the answer to, for me is no, because I don't know of any studies, any reports of people exercising that kind of phenomena when the brain is completely non-functioning right the second experience she had was that she watched herself again she's claiming to be out of her body watched herself being resuscitated twice which is then verified by everybody in the operating room this the personnel were extensively interviewed by other researchers, including this guy I mentioned, Dr. Sabon.
0: Was that w- because this was a new sort of experimental surgery for the aneurysm? Like that's, I mean, you mentioned that that's why it was so closely monitored and everything, but then these interviews and whatnot, was that more that, like, I, I guess I'm just curious about the sort of sequence of events here. Were they interviewing and studying this, and then realize like, oh shit, this lady had a crazy experience, or did she tell someone, hey, I had this crazy experience, and then they really dug into it more? It's it's maybe you don't know the answer. It's
1: more, that. I don't really know, but it's more of the latter. Okay, the, these interviews were not done immediately, I don't think. Sabon, I think, was pretty close. Uh, I can't remember when his book came out, where he chronicles some of this, but. Uh, it was really on her report of what she had experienced and the detail that she could give. And she could give this evidence about the resuscitation because it was new. Nobody knew. Obviously, if you drain the blood out of somebody's body and then you put it back in, the heart is stopped. You have to start the heart. Right. But they didn't know what that entailed. They knew that, okay, they, they tried it the first time. It didn't work. And then they did it a second time, which was unusual. She saw that. She saw it went on a second time. So it wasn't anything she could have made up. Maybe a lucky guess, but why two? Why not three? Why not right. one? I watched you to resuscitate me. No, she said you you did it. You had to do it twice. So the personnel in this are, are amazed, and if you read the reports, uh, Spetzler, the surgeon, says I, I I have no explanation for this. <laughs> the anesthesiologist, the second, the the other surgeon, Camilla Moran, I think is her name, uh, Spetzler. They they have no explanation for this. They said this is beyond the bounds of anything we can understand. So the case looks really good. And what makes it strong is that all of these people have gone on the record, have been interviewed. There are some veridical elements to it. Um, <clears throat> and some of those are inexplicable unless you, unless you want to make the argument that consciousness is independent of the brain. Because even if you're thinking of telepathy or clairvoyance, consciousness is operating as we've said beyond our sight and our and our ears right it's operating in some other way independent of the senses independent of physiology okay so this i think is a prime case because there there is pushback which is important to consider right there are critiques but it uh but most of those critiques don't really get to the essence of it most of the critiques hold up now, I'll give you an example of a case. I'm sorry I'm going on at such length here.
0: No, I mean, uh, I ask you.
1: There's a case that is often considered to be uh, the classic case. It's a Christopher Hitchens, mm. who was a British journalist and um, intellectual gadfly, uh, very controversial, very smart guy, and one of the uh four horsemen of the new atheists completely dismissed all of these phenomena near-death experience cases of reincarnation um, medium readings dismissed it all as just hokum right it's just something pt barnum would have would have dug up and he cited one case that is used has been used throughout the near death experience literature. It's a case of the blue sneaker.
0: Is this the the windowsill one? This is the
1: windowsill one. Yeah. So the short version is that a a woman is brought into a hospital outside of Seattle. She's had uh, she's gone into cardiac arrest. She's had several cardiac arrest episodes while in the hospital during one of these episodes. She claims that she left her body floated out of her room, moved around the hospital floated up to um one of the higher floors where she saw a blue sneaker on a window ledge and she described the scuff mark on the sneaker and how the uh one of the laces had been tucked under the shoe she comes back to her body she's in her room and she's trying to explain this experience to the personnel some of the hospital personnel they're completely unfamiliar with this this is probably 1977 something like that they're completely unfamiliar with this and so they go to the social worker who works in the hospital her name is sharp i'm gonna say karen i'm not sure that's right um And they bring her in and say, look, this patient may be having some psychological problems. We'd like you to talk to her. So the social worker sits down with her and says, what happened? This patient, her name is Maria, goes through the whole account. So to build trust, Kim Sharp, maybe? Sorry, I'm gonna keep coming back. I can't remember Sharp's name. Her last name is Sharp. To build trust with Maria, Sharp, Says, well, I'm going to go search this out and goes up to the fifth floor, looks around, can't see anything, then goes to the opposite side of the building, looks out the window and sees a blue sneaker. He says, oh my God, this is true. This is right. Now, Christopher Hitchens' position is no one ever interviewed Maria. All we know is her first name. According to Hitchens, nobody knew the name of the nurse. She wasn't a nurse, she was a social worker, and we know her name. But there is an absence of, of being able to verify what occurred other than the report from Kimberly Sharp. I think that's her name, Kimberly Sharp. <laughs> other than the report from Kimberly Sharp. Now, 1977, why would Kimberly Sharp, a social worker within a hospital, have any interest in near-death experiences? Why would she make this up?
0: Right. But And then also, why would she or anyone else contemporaneously uh we wouldn't expect them to like conduct a rigorous collection of evidence, uh, you know, for Christopher Hitchens, Hitchens, uh, you know, sake, 30 years later or right. whatever. No, That's right. You we know? Would. So, I mean, I think I get where you're going. Like, cause I, if I recall correctly, this was one of the things that sort of spurred you to really emphasize the veridical evidence aspect yeah. of these yeah, as, because it's like, let's set the bar higher. If people like Hitchens are gonna, you know, they're gonna pick weak cases and prop them up and say, "Oh, let's dismiss all of this because, it, you know, this particular something's happened to your microphone." Yeah, the cat muted me. My back, <laughs> smart cat. Yeah, little bastard cat, more like it. Um, yeah, yeah, that's but, you're you're right. Yeah, that's, so that's that's what you're driving at, right?
1: Yeah. So. Uh, Hitchens is right to scoff because hospital personnel were not interviewed. Nobody knows whether Maria was actually uh, had a a non-functioning brain, whether she was clinically dead. Uh, We only have the report of this one social worker. No one ever identified Maria. No one ever interviewed Maria. No one knows anything about this patient except Kimberly Sharp but why would she lie well there's good reason why she would lie it turns out that kimberly sharp had had her own near-death experience if not once but i think maybe twice when she was younger number Mm -hmm. one number two she was the head of the chapter of the near-death experience studies group in seattle so she had every reason to lie to bring attention to herself she then ends up writing a book and bring attention to near death experiences. So this could be a, a complete fabrication by her, that there was no Maria, there was no blue sneaker, there was no, there was nothing. So right. there were some more investigations by a couple of graduate students who said, could you see the sneaker? If you threw a sneaker up on the, on the ledge up there, could you see it? Yes, you could. So if she's wheeled into the hospital, on her back on a gurney she looked up could she see a sneaker and they said yeah you might be able to so there are a host of reasons why this is a bad case so that's why i emphasize the importance of interviewing personnel because all the medical personnel in the pam Reynolds case are on record they were uh, interviewed more than once by more than one person so it's been pretty well established and uh, I think, that's, I think that's pretty strong evidence. I think that case is a very good example that it has to be explained away. You have to be able to come up with, with uh, credible scientific slash medical explanations for all the things that, that Pam Reynolds
0: described. Right, right. It's some sort of counter explanation uh, that resolves sort of every every knot in the string, so to speak. That's what I find compelling about the Pam Reynolds case is like there are, for everything that a skeptic may raise questions about, there are like three layers of events that make it difficult to question. Like, so her eyes being taped shut, the clickers in her ear, the blood being completely drained from her body there's no fucking way she could have known what was being said and happening in that room under normal, you know, bo- right. from, from her normal bodily senses. Right. That's so right. Whatever it is, those are brain. out, you know? Yeah.
1: yeah. But, but so you have to admit, so if you don't buy any of the other worldly events, the, you know, traveling to the beautiful place, meeting grandmother, all that, because right. that is just subjective. You still have to be able to explain all the things that she did hear and see because it appears that consciousness is operating independent of her brain right and if that's the case then that means that consciousness doesn't end when we when our physical bodies end it goes on well it goes on in what form well that's what a lot of these these researchers are now looking into is there any way we can we can verify talk about uh how people what what goes on when consciousness is freed from the brain right and there's some there's some interesting studies uh trying to demonstrate that you know, how long do people live do they do you do, I, I just finished uh, reading stephen king's book a novel later mm. and in that he the protagonist <clears throat> is able to see dead people <laughs> and is able able to communicate with them and and stephen king's world the dead have to tell you the truth and so if you ask them any question question they have to tell you the truth
0: oh interesting
1: that's interesting but the second part that's interesting is that they begin to fade over time right so for the first hour a couple of hours or days there you he can see the body but then the voice begins to fade and the body begins to fade and eventually they, they both disappear now that could be Maybe what happens with Pam Reynolds? Maybe she'd been there in our time frame—another hour, another day, another week, a year. Eventually, she begins to dissolve. Consciousness begins to to splinter uh, and fall apart. Uh, but who knows? So people are trying to look into that, and there are ways I think you can do it. They're kind of interesting, but
0: yeah, that, that is intriguing. I mean, it, it just the whole part of it. Uh, why I find this stuff all interesting is because it raises so many interesting questions that, that then reflect back on what, you know, our normal waking experience in intriguing ways. So like, it seems like one of the driving interests for you is really exploring this aspect of proof and like getting getting a clear picture and compelling stories that support the existence of this um, experience or these phenomena, and especially that make it impossible to dismiss at the very least, the, the likelihood approaching certainty that consciousness persists after bodily death. Is, would, you, would you agree that that's sort of your driving motivation in this area like you're very interested in that in the possibility for consciousness existing after death. I mean you mentioned that already but just reformulating it here because I want to talk a little bit about one of the things that I find interesting about it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, mean, I I don't know
1: I I don't know how people can't be interested in this. I I don't really understand <laughs> it. I somehow it becomes frightening. People don't wanna know. And so their first reaction is simply to dismiss it out of hand. That can't happen, that's preposterous. We can't know that, nobody right. can know that. But my response to that is, I'm not sure what you mean by know that, but it appears that people, scientists, researchers, medical professionals are coming, are coming to know a lot about consciousness independent of the brain and and i'll give you one example of why i think this is so significant Mm
0: -hmm.
1: a neuroscientist named sam harris who, (laughs) who uh came to fame by writing a book right after 9 11 called the end of faith and is another one of the four horsemen of the new new atheists right uh talks a lot about free will talks a lot about consciousness um and claims to be somebody who bases what he says on, on facts and evidence. He also happens to be a longtime and serious uh meditator, Buddhist meditator, and also someone who has had multiple experiences on psychedelics to get back to our last encounter. Right. But there's a flaw in almost everything he's saying because there is a fundamental assumption that he's not examined and that is he he goes by the assumption but he hasn't examined it is consciousness produced by the brain right his position is yes and so his fear his overwhelming fear is that ai agi artificial general intelligence Mm. will enable us to create robots that will be a million times smarter than the smartest person on earth. So smart that they'll be able to manipulate us into doing whatever they want <laughs> and will take over the world. Right. But that assumes that they're gonna have through this AGI, they're gonna be able to develop their own motivations and goals that they're gonna have desires. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the idea that these robots will have a form of consciousness, that they will be, as we again going back to, to our last encounter, mm-hmm. self-referential creatures. That's a huge assumption.
0: It's a huge, it's a huge assumption, I agree. And not only that, it's kind of ironic because I haven't I haven't read much of Harris's stuff in many years, because for me he's kind of a douchebag. But, but I mean, like he has said, I, I think you and I may have talked long ago about his exchange with Noam Chomsky. I don't know if we did talk about that. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe I'm misremembering, but he had this exchange with Noam Chomsky over email, which he then like Chomsky will correspond with anyone. I've corresponded with him multiple times. He's very generous with his time. And uh, so Harris I don't even remember what the topic was, honestly, at this point in time. But Harris was asking Chomsky a series of questions and just making an ass out of himself. And Chomsky finally was like, eh, I'm done with you. Then Harris publishes the whole exchange on his blog. And in my opinion, Harris looked terrible, uh, but he thought he came out on top. So, anyway, that's just one example among many. But beside the point, he's still, I think his early work was incisive, and he's obviously still a smart dude who's uh, worth. Uh, listening to even if only for the point of purpose of pushing back against but what i find ironic in what you were just saying is that you know he uh, rose to prominence because of his critiques of religion and especially christianity but then he's creating the consciousness of ai in the image of man just like god created man in the image of god supposedly you know he's just projecting you know human consciousness onto ai or robotic consciousness in a quasi religious manner you could argue yeah and it's and he, just and it's, it's really shallow you know yeah and he's not alone
1: yeah he's, there there there's a whole industry of people maybe maybe the concerns are warranted uh but for me it's this notion that you you can replicate the entire neural network of a human brain, which is in itself going to be a major undertaking. But there is no, for me, there is no evidence that it's going to produce anything like our
0: consciousness. No.
1: So it, inorganic. I mean, how, for,
0: that's the first thing.
1: Well, that, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> no. that was where I was, what I was going to say. Yeah. If there is evidence that consciousness is independent of the brain, and you are thinking about creating what you think are going to be conscious creatures, you better spend a fair amount of time looking at the evidence that consciousness is independent of the brain. And they're not looking at it at all no. because like Christopher Hitchens, they take one bad case and then dismiss the entire enterprise. Right. But uh, there is just overwhelming cases now that i think science and and medicine are going to be hard pressed to explain whether again it's reincarnation or mediumship readings or near-death experiences uh yeah and you've got to come up with an explanation you can't simply (laughs) say oh well that's not right what what isn't right where is it faulty where does it fall apart and that that's what that's where my interest is give me the cases Let, let me see what's going on let me see if i can find where it falls apart and when i can't Uh, I'm going to say there's really something here worth looking, looking into.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, part of it is sort of, I don't know if we want to call it political, but it's certainly like, uh, it's certainly reflective of certain values, some of which are political. Like I'm thinking big picture here, the, uh, the inheritance of the enlightenment scientific method sort of a strict materialism. And what I think people like Harris and Dawkins oftentimes exhibit is like scientism, right? Like this fundamentalist view of science that, that science can explain everything and only the only things that exist are explicable by science. And I think that has become so institutionalized uh, in higher education. And of course, the hard sciences in particular, that, you know, the organization of academic and industrial research just selects out these questions, like they, they don't even recognize them as things to be considered, right? I mean, and again, that's changing, perhaps with the growth of different institutes and whatever, but it's just been systematically dismissed. Yeah. For so much, and like you mentioned, even people like William James—you know, arguably the most influential intellectual in American history—you um, know, it doesn't matter that he was interested in this and took it seriously, and many others—they're they, just it's dismissed out of hand. Yeah, and, and there's a deep irony in that because, in dismissing it,
1: they have betrayed their own discipline. They right. have betrayed the scientific method. People are saying we have scientific evidence that this is the telepathy is real on their own terms right. Right. and they won't look. There's a great, there's a great uh, example of this. There is a, a Harvard and Cambridge university trained biochemist or botanist named Rupert Sheldrake
0: yes morphogenetic fields right that's morphogenetic fields exactly
1: and sheldrake uh started off by like most scientists scoffing at the the notion that anything like telepathy could be real until he was stopped short by a senior uh, chemist person who was highly regarded who said to sheldrake have you looked at the evidence to which sheldrake (laughs) said no why would i he said well i have and there's something there
0: right right and sheldrake Look, took credit bastard <laughs> like, yeah
1: again began to pay attention
0: yeah yeah that's and his, and his that's no small feat you know no to make exactly that, yeah.
1: yeah and his career it took a turn he's now done extensive telepathy uh research where i was headed with that was to say that he was uh richard dawkins a third member of the four horsemen of the new atheists who's the fourth dennett dennett daniel yeah. dennett a philosopher of no renown um <laughs> daniel sweet
0: beard though <laughs>
1: Sweetbeard beard looks a, looks a fair amount like darwin yeah yeah he does <laughs> you take a look at him um but dawkins had an interview show or some kind of show of his own and he wanted to interview sheldrake so they set up this interview for the show and uh, i don't know if sheldrake went to him or dawkins came to sheldrake mm-hmm. and they're having this conversation and they're not going anywhere and sheldrake says you haven't asked me at all about the evidence. Right. You're a, you know, he doesn't say, he doesn't then go on to say what I'm going to say, but you're a scientist for Christ's sake. Right. What, what are you doing? You want to start with the evidence. Let's look at the evidence. He didn't ask him at all about it. He just wanted to debunk the work right. without, without looking en- at the data.
0: Yeah. Without engaging with it because, and this is where I think they're, they have these, the four horsemen and, and those that they've influenced This is where their brain rot sort of shows itself, which is, you know, again, because these questions, Dawkins assumes or presumes that these questions uh, are gesturing towards things that are unscientific or outside the scientific umbrella, therefore, they're bogus, they're garbage, they might as well be, you know, Uh, from the old testament or whatever you know it's just it's something to be dismissed to be dismissed and it's unfortunate because it it leaves people blind uh, and unwilling to engage with stuff that is like real (laughs) you
1: know yeah well it's not unlike having doctors and scientists say that the covid vaccine doesn't work right and thereby gives lay persons the excuse not to take it
0: Right. Or the doctors that testified for uh, the tobacco companies, <laughs> you know, smoking won't kill yeah. you.
1: Well, the, 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 the lunatic, what's her name? Tenpenny. Is that her name? The the doctor, medical doctor who testified that there was uh, some kind of magnetic effect by getting oh. the vaccine and things would stick to you. Now, this is this is a woman who has an M.D.
0: from someplace. Did, was she the one that put a key on her chest? Did you see I, that? And was I well, trying she, to say, first of all, keys, I don't think keys are magnetic most of the time to begin with <laughs>
1: like, there is some substance that you secrete that will allow that phenomenon to occur yes yeah, probably it, well, yeah. <laughs> the, i think like, i told i think fuck. i don't know if you and i talked about this before but there was a debunker a, a guy who believed fully that the vaccine had a chip in it that it was right. magnetized and so he's on live on his um, youtube channel and he says, "Let me show you how this is effective." He pulls his shirt up and he rubs baby powder on his arm to get all the sweat off. Uh-huh. He said, "Now I'm showing you because I have this baby powder here, that there's nothing, there's nothing here, there's no sweat, there's no oil, there's nothing here." And watch this—he puts the key on it and falls to the floor. <laughs> yeah. And he says, to his credit, he says, "I'm wrong. I'm completely <laughs> wow. wrong.
0: There's nothing yeah. to this." The apple fell from the tree. Oh, yeah, gravity! Yeah. <laughs> but you know that doesn't happen
1: often enough. But it's right. just, it's this insistence that there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to look at. Have you no. looked at the evidence? No, I haven't, but I just, I just know there isn't any. I mean, this is, <laughs> but the, again, it's like the what irony, a toddler would do. Yeah. It's, it's the irony. It is that here's the scientist now in the position of the cardinal. Right. From the, from the Catholic church who refused to look through Galileo's telescope, because he said it can't be that the earth rotates around the sun the earth right. is the center it has
0: to be the other way well right. take a look no i
1: don't have to look yeah, This that's is what the scientists are doing it is it's it's maddening
0: that's a really good analogy uh and it connects exactly to what i was trying to say earlier about the paradigm shift and all of that and it re- and it just raises or you know it just highlights i guess the fact that these individuals identities are bound up with them yep. not understanding yep. you know i there's a i think it's a sinclair lewis quote that may be apocryphal but it goes something like this it's like it's hard to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it yeah so and, and, you know, and go beyond, that kind and, of thing
1: and go beyond the salary right. where your where your reputation where right. your worldview yes. where your personal identity is wrapped up in your not believing something yes and there's a lot at stake
0: my- it's almost metaphysical because in this case and in the case of galileo too because it's it's the personal identity it's the culture and reputation as you pointed to but then it's also it's like your actual conception of like reality is is at at stake here too and is being contested yeah
1: yeah exactly the the, the basic units i I quote in the the chapter or the one of the chapters and Uh, stalking white crows i I quote dawkins who says if uh psi phenomena paranormal phenomena are real then the whole world of physics is turned upside down and the answer to that is they're real (laughs) evidence is overwhelming and 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 I, i quote other people in the chapter saying look if they if you had the amount of evidence for other phenomena that you have for telepathy for example there wouldn't be any question that it's true it's 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 like the law of gravity it goes from a theory to a law right this stuff is absolutely true so then you say and don't stop at physics you know biology is going to be completely upended but that's what you're pointing at your reality will change fundamentally your worldview will change your identity will change your reputation your salary
0: all of it everything and it's just it's funny too because i guess maybe it, maybe it's an unavoidable problem for some of these people in the hard sciences especially and and particularly people who are highly accomplished within the hard sciences as they've been practiced over at least the last 50 years but there's as much as Scientific inquiry is predicated upon like falsifiability and peer review and the assumption that, you know, this is just our best guess and we'll get more data and all this in the future. There seems to be such a sort of arrogance and certainty that comes with the, the this territory and these these types of people like for me and i think this is probably true for you too although i don't i don't know that you would put it in the same terms but for me like my fundamental position is always that humans are are absolute morons we have very minimal <laughs> capacities for perception cognition just everything like we're dum dums, and uh the idea that we could understand the universe is just laughable to me. I, I, well, both that we could in theory, understand it completely, but more importantly that we do presently understand it completely yeah. or near completely. So it's just like, that's my, that's, that's where I sort of root like my absurdist perspective. Like I, I consider myself an absurdist and that's a big part of why, Because like, we're no different than a squirrel running along the ground and looking up at the sky, in my opinion. You know, we have, we're a little bit better, but not much. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm a little bit better than the squirrel. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yes. But it may be be marginally better than the squirrel. Right. We still have, the the point is just that we have profound limitations. Absolutely. And it just, yeah, no, I was, I was
1: agreeing, but kidding let, let me give yeah, another yeah. example uh since we've launched into talks now about consciousness independent of the brain and near-death experiences and life afterlife there was in the news i don't know how long ago this was a couple of weeks where the pentagon has released a, a bunch of papers about ufos videos and <laughs> papers
0: just said like yeah they're real. <laughs> like,
1: well, well, but this much. is this is where I was headed with that. Okay, so they release all this information and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, okay, I'm not sold on this. The evidence is pretty spotty. Right. Okay, so you've got airline pilots and jet fighter pilots and uh, navy radar people uh guys on you know destroyers and aircraft carriers seeing strange things <laughs> but, right. but the best they've got is video of a tic-tac right. Right. flying around making sudden moves accelerating decelerating going under the water coming out and my first thought is, are you sure it's not something in your equipment?
0: I was just thinking, maybe it's a grain of sand rolling yeah, around. Yeah, something got lens. in there. <laughs>
1: There's some malfunction. It, it's just odd to me. If if let's call it a a, a some flying ship of some kind is toying with us. The best they can do is fly a big tic-tac around. (laughs) That's it. Bring the mothership into vision. (laughs) Let it hover. Yes. Let people get, you know, this. this, So I I heard this very interesting uh, observation. There was a Harvard psychiatrist named Mack, M-A-C-K, who began either having colleagues with patients or his own patients who claim to have experiences of being abducted by aliens Mm. Uh, and for them it was real so real that mac wrote at least one maybe maybe one book maybe two books about this harvard trained harvard teaching psychiatrist is believing that people have been abducted by aliens the observation was that when the smartphone came out all of this disappeared right so when people had the ability to to record on video things that were happening immediately all this disappeared there's no evidence of lights and ships (coughs) lifting people
0: out of cars or out of their (laughs) beds there's no evidence of that Right, and if anything, you would expect there to be more evidence since cameras, high quality cameras are more widely available now. Yeah, you've got no. CCTV all over Europe and England in particular. I mean,
1: everything, you know, China. Right. We, we can't find an alien, we can't find a UFO. So, so despite the release of this, I, I'm highly skeptical because I don't think the evidence is good enough. Now, I, I'm interested in the evidence being better. I mm-hmm. wanna see the evidence be better. Because I follow the evidence. But right now, it just looks primitive and bad.
0: (laughs) Yes. I haven't, I mean, first, I would just say I haven't dug into it in any depth. Like, I've read much more about near death experiences and things that we were talking about earlier. I've read very little about UFOs, but I'm kind of in the same camp as you. On the one hand, like, first of all, like, I I definitely think there is life outside of our planet. Um, just because of this vastness of the universe. Now, yeah, whether that's the odds, yeah, whether yeah. that's complex life or uh, even carbon-based life or whatever, who knows? But right. like, again, to go back to human arrogance, we're definitely not the only things out here floating around. That being said, I've never seen any accounts or images or videos that were persuasive to me. They're all grainy. They're all... Um, could be easily explained by other phenomena, including most famously weather balloons, which I think accounts for like 90% of UFO sightings. I'm making that number up, but that's just something I see all the time. Uh, and then there's also the aspect of like, just my permanent distrust of the government, right? <laughs> which is like, why would these assholes release this material voluntarily? If, you know, they thought it was meaningful or if it proved anything, and the answer for me is they definitely would not. <laughs> right. Like the only reason this was declassified is because it's trash. You know, but just because we, we know that things have remained classified, like I think the Kennedy files were supposed to be declassified by now and they haven't been, or maybe I'm misremembering that, but just anyway, you know, the government is not a reliable source and we always have to question their motivations. But I do think there's interesting overlap between, um, you know, possible alien abductions or UFO sightings, and some of the other stuff we were talking about earlier, and one of the things that unites them, I think, is that at least historically, and this remains the case today, uh, they re- depend so much on isolated, subjective accounts, right? and this was, and this is what spurred you to start seeking out veridical evidence and really focusing on that. I think is that, you know, we just can't believe uh, somebody's narrative that's based solely on their own experience. But at the same time, I find that really interesting because I think the phenomenology of this stuff is fascinating. So the, like the subjective experience that these people relate and how there are oftentimes common characteristics for near-death experiences, as well as alien abductions um, across different subjective accounts, obviously coming into the light for near-death experiences. Um, and But other uh, certain like, hallmarks, I guess we could say of these accounts, but you know, it, it brings, I think that's part of what brings it into a territory. Like the, the fact that those are always going to be present is I think also what makes them so easy for folks like Dawkins and others to dismiss is because they want to say, well, this nut job is talking about, you know, little green men or seeing her grandmother in a halo of light or whatever. And so, you know, it's just, this is trash. This is somebody, this is a lunatic raving on the corner or whatever, or they were just hallucinating, you know, or any number of things. But so in other words, they don't have the methodology, I guess, to take seriously first person accounts, subjective accounts and narratives and to make sense of those. Now, the scientific method isn't going to do that, but that doesn't mean there's no fucking way to do that. There are a number of different analytical approaches and lenses through which to examine and consider subjective experience um, and narratives. You know, I'm thinking of things like dream interpretation, psychotherapy, literary analysis. Just many different approaches that we could take that, yes, they're non scientific, but that doesn't mean they are invalid or useless. Do you see what I'm getting at? So, like, I just think it takes an interdisciplinary perspective, maybe, to sort of take these things seriously. I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but.
1: I don't know what to think about that.
0: Well, then how do you explain someone intelligent and, you know, we would think capable of delving into these topics like Dawkins? What's your explanation for their not doing so? Is it just the reputational cost and things like this?
1: Yeah, it's what you described earlier. It's, it's mm. uh, the, the quote from, was it Sinclair Lewis? supposedly
0: i think that's who it was
1: yeah when you're paid not to see these things and not to think these things uh but it's more than just being paid it's your it's your reputation it's your worldview. it's your view of reality it's your view of of your identity those are high stakes particularly when your job is to explain the world to people as dawkins does as harris wants to do the problem i have is that you have you have these two different uh, piles the one pile is something that can be examined through the scientific method which is why i think it's so important but the other is this pile of subjective reports and that's what i mean when i said i don't know what to think about that Mm. because one is saying from whatever measure of reality you want to use these things are real they happened and we have the independent verification that this happened, this was real. The subjective reports re- require our own assumptions. And I don't want to make those assumptions. I don't want to assume that oh yes, this because this is real for that person, it's therefore real. Sure. Okay. So yeah, so none of the methods you you, you mentioned psychoanalysis, literary theory, are going to be able to get to the reality in the first pile, right? It would be like saying, let's see whether Hamlet actually lived in Denmark. Let's see if this really happened, if this, if this play is reflective of a historical event. Okay, Now, you and I would both agree, it doesn't matter if Hamlet ever lived we're pretty sure hamlet didn't but it doesn't really matter there may have been some historical figures related to to the character in shakespeare's play but we don't read the play for that reason right we're not you know we didn't say okay let's get the veridical evidence that the ghost of hamlet's father actually came to him you know that's not what's driving us so that those are the two elements i see uh And I don't know that they're reconcilable for me. That isn't to say that the second pile, the subjective reports from the afterlife are useless. They're not because of one thing that we can say about them that is real is that people, when they come back from these experiences, when they've had them, often have a fundamental transformation in their lives. Right. Their, their outlook on life changes. Their values change. Sometimes the, the life work they've undertaken changes. There are examples of people who have had very successful careers, completely forsaken those careers and gone in a different direction trying to help people with their mental health or their psychological well-being or help them themselves transform psychologically. So there is a power in the subjective reports that has nothing to do with whether they are real. Mm. for an independent observer, but they are absolutely real for the person who had them because we see it in the transformation of their own lives. Right.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think, so I guess, yeah, setting those, I'm thinking of kind of like Habermas's work in the way that that he and others have shown, you know, that there are domains of inquiry that are valid but that are different from scientific inquiry, right? So these subjective yeah. accounts or intersubjective verification of cultural things or whatever, like those are valid, but they're bounded and they are separate from something like empirical inquiry. So I guess what my thought was, it's like for somebody who's who's so firmly rooted like Dawkins or others in the, conventional empirical scientific mode of inquiry i think it's very easy for them to sort of be swayed by the presence of something that doesn't fit their paradigm and then that's that's their out to dismiss it you know i'm just sort of speculating here on what drives them to do this types of things but that's that's part of my hunch because it would line up well with like what I've read of some of their critiques of religion, right? It's just, it's fantastical. It's not rooted in reality. You know, how could the, the the earth is 4 billion years old, not seven days old, you know, or whatever, when it was created, just all these kinds of things. But it's something like a category error, I think, to submit to scientific criteria, something that is non-scientific, But that doesn't mean that there aren't other criteria for inquiry and investigation and analysis. And we should, if we want a complete understanding of these phenomena, then we should integrate in some way those things, which I think is what you do. Like you look for the veridical evidence that is compelling, persuasive, et cetera, in the empirical realm, but you don't just discard then the first person accounts. Like you, in the work of yours that I've read, like you, you do integrate those and you take those people seriously up until the point where they should not be taken seriously. In other words, you investigate their subjective accounts just as thoroughly as you investigate the veridical evidence. And I think that, I just think that that's like the approach to take. But I also just wanted to raise this, I mean, maybe you'll have something to say that, but I also wanted to raise something that we can maybe come to in a minute which is I'm, I'm having my mind here also other types of experiences. Some we've talked about like psychedelic experiences, something that I'm familiar with, which is lucid dreaming. I don't know if you're familiar with about, with that, but we can talk about that. And uh, I'm, I mean, I'm familiar with it from my own experience of it and uh, things of that nature. Maybe we could even lump in here mystical experiences that are what we might call ineffable, or or certainly very difficult to communicate about, but that are, um, you know, relevant <laughs> for thinking about these topics, and and are certainly valid for the subjectively valid for the individuals who are articulating their firsthand accounts and experiences. So I don't know, I don't know where I'm going with this, if I'm going anywhere with this at this point, but I just, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud and trying to emphasize what I think, why I think it's so important not to swing the pendulum too far in the other direction and say, eh, forget, forget the narratives. Not that you do this, but some people I think might forget the first person accounts. Let's just look at the circumstantial or veridical empirical evidence and not worry about, you know, the stories that these kooks might tell or that they might tell and therefore be painted as kooks to discredit the entire project.
1: Okay. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm with you on the idea that not all of life is summarized by what we can Discover in the empirical world, the world uh, that does not rely upon what we believe. The reality that that is the physical reality in which we all find ourselves, our environment, our planet, our galaxy, our universe. It it doesn't matter what you believe about that, right? When things in, when you break your leg, it doesn't matter that you think you haven't, right? you have. Right? And so people are going to, outside of you are gonna look at that broken leg and say, your leg is broken, pal. You probably wanna do something about that. But that isn't then to dismiss the interior life that we, all, well, that we all have. And what we're trying to do there is identify those aspects of an interior life that we think are worth living and then focus on those and try to downplay or do away with aspects that we think are harmful to living a good life. So there's the exterior and the interior, right? And I think, so if you're, if you're after interior truths, you're not gonna find those outside. Like We'll use the example of slavery. If somebody wanted to make the argument the slaves were better off as slaves say well why do you think that and they might say well they were they had clothes what do you mean clothes they were rags well they were clothes they had a roof over their heads yes they lived in in shacks uh that had no insulation probably were leaky they were so you keep so you're on the terrain now where you're saying oh and they were well treated not every master whipped his slaves not every master uh fucked the women
0: right the the, the some of the ss guards would play cards with the yeah with the jews at uh, in their camp you know
1: yeah and will maybe play games with the children so mm-hmm. yes yeah, so let's find a slave master who was decent or let's find an ss guard who was a good guy Now, does that then allow us to say, oh, yes, the slavery was okay"? No, because you're completely missing the interior life of a person who has been reduced to property. Right. What is that like? It doesn't matter. Joked on saliva. It doesn't (laughs) matter how well you're treated. That isn't the point. If you're treated well or poorly, you're a slave. You are somebody's property to be dealt with as that person sees fit, whether that seeing fit is treating you well or treating you poorly <laughs>
0: no, it's d de- it's dehumanizing
1: yeah it's dehumanizing regardless of how the person is treated so so we want to look at the interior life and there the notion of how we discover truth is going to be different from how we discover it looking out in the real world right you know what are we after when we're reading macbeth we're not after to see how a guy actually rules a kingdom we're interested in the interior life of this person. What, what does it tell us about human nature, about the human condition to see to, to see someone acting this way? Now you could dismiss it, say, no one would act that way. Why even bother reading a play like that, right? That's, that's the scientist saying, I'm not gonna look at the evidence for life after death. It's somebody else says, there is a, an incredibly rich picture of what motivates human beings found here and worth looking into so i think yes so i think if you and i can agree that there there are two different kinds of truths because there are two different kinds of lives two different kinds of realities an interior and exterior then i think we're getting somewhere and for me where they come together and i just come back to this point i've already made mm-hmm. is that the people who have had near-death experiences or mediumship readings or reincarnation phenomenon may be describing aspects of living that can't be demonstrated empirically scientifically but let's look at the result of those experiences for them in their interior lives then it's incredibly important to pay attention to what they're saying and when you stretch that across again across cultures and across time to see that these experiences of uh of a near death are transformative in how rich your interior life becomes or even how different your interior life becomes then it is they are well worth paying attention to and not just dismissing out of hand yeah but the, the criterion for doing it are different right it's not based upon the scientific method anymore it's based upon something else
0: yes yes i think we agree and like i wasn't even meaning to set this up as like a, a point of disagreement um just you know, tilting at windmills here, I guess, (laughs) but it's like uh, I'm, but what I think is interesting now that you mentioned that, like the sort of dialectical relationship between the interior and the exterior such that investigating the interior accounts may shed significant light on The exterior phenomena invite and obviously vice versa so you have an example in mind well i mean so i'm thinking analogously like uh the way that paulin michael paulin uh sort of arranged and approached his book about psychedelics he came at it from this very materialist skeptic position and then he actually uh not just sort of studied the empirical evidence and research on psychedelics and things like this. But he also took the psychedelics so that he could have this first person experience. So there's that's an example where you see it united in a single person, I think, that sort of an exterior and interior approach that's attempted to be at least put into conversation with one another, if not um, integrated in some way. But so, you know, we can't then say, well, we should induce near-death experiences on Richard Dawkins, you know, throw him in front of a bus or something and see if he comes out on the other side and has a different perspective on, uh, you know, this phenomena. But, you know, something that we've talked about at other times is like the power of narratives. And maybe he could sort of If he was, he and others of his ilk were open, more receptive or whatever, they could drop into the narratives of others who have had these experiences and actually take them seriously and actually have some moral imagination and things to, to vicariously undergo to the, to the extent possible, what this person went through, take it seriously, you know, and maybe be influenced and have their minds open a little bit as a result i don't can, know can you name i'm going to give you the number 10 that
1: might be too many maybe five <laughs> is easier to deal with well it's obviously easier to deal with yeah the most influential people
0: in the world right now yeah like like alive today yeah who would i name yeah, who would you name? Wow, that's a good question. I mean, I think I I think I would automatically go with the president of the United States as one. Uh, necessarily. It depends also how you're on your defining influential.
1: I'm not. I'm just leaving it to you either to define it or not define it. What I
0: need to know why you're asking me this before I can I, give. I answers. can't. I can't tell you yet. Oh, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could tell you, but I'm not going to. Okay. I mean, it doesn't it because
1: it's almost irrelevant. You could name five. You could you could say Tom Hanks. Uh-huh. You could say um, Sting. Uh, I'm like, Sting. That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, you know, just so so. Who's the most influential rapper? Who's the most influential actor? Who's the most influential uh, artist? writer right p- political figure can, can you name can you name any of them i mean is, would dawkins be a, one of the most influential intellectuals would uh, yeah
0: yeah i mean i think dawkins is certainly in science he's one of the major science communicators although he's dropped off a little bit i think neil degrasse tyson is probably okay. the most that's prominent. a good one yeah
1: okay neil degrasse tyson we've got one there um i'm, I'm going to hold aside the president For a moment, you'll know why in a second. What about what about a cultural figure? Would you say a Jay Z? Would Jay Z be one? Yeah, I mean LeBron James. I'm trying to think of somebody who who maybe crosses over. You know, he's got they've got the interest in all kinds of things.
0: Yes, and I mean we could do this. That's part of why I was asking too. Is like we could do this for every sort of domain. But yeah, I mean like uh musically certainly in rap you know jay-z somebody and their younger people who are becoming more prominent kendrick lamar i think would be a good example but we're, worldwide right now jay-z is probably bigger than kendrick yeah lamar. i
1: think yeah globally yeah. okay so globally talk globally so we've got jay-z we've got neil degrasse tyson um anybody in the arts you can think of
0: uh visual arts or like a writer i mean writer visual
1: arts i mean composer. stephen king
0: who you already mentioned is still pretty influential that guy has sold and continues to sell incredible amounts of books he's got okay. a pretty big twitter following okay.
1: let's say let's say stephen king Let, let's throw beyonce in there with jay-z just to get some <laughs> husband more and women in there um maybe whose movies are always box office
0: successes used to be will smith but i think he's lost he's some faded of his, yeah. yeah would you
1: say tom cruise or he, he's
0: he still does pretty well i think i mean tom hanks is also who you mentioned okay Did so let's know. say we've got those five people okay
1: jay-z beyonce uh tom hanks neil degrasse tyson we had one more in there. And, and and dawkins yes okay and because they're so influential worldwide we kidnap them and we force them to take a psychedelic yeah because we are confident that if we put them in the right set and setting they're obviously freaked out now so (laughs) that the set is going to be a problem because they're they're they've been kidnapped but we bring in somebody like marianne williamson whom they can recognize and and maybe even trust they think she's maybe a little out there but somebody like that oprah right. yeah we bring an oprah guide yeah oprah yeah, <laughs> oprah and yeah people who are who are well regarded and maybe trustworthy yeah and we say to them here's what's going to happen we're going to give you this experience where we're going back to our last encounter where you're going to have a deeper love for the people you cherish
0: yeah
1: and but we're not but we're forcing this on them <laughs> right. they're going to do it they can't say no i don't want that they're, they're going to do it because it's more than the hope that they'll have a transformative experience there's a likelihood that they will right to open their mind so we got two scientists degrasse tyson and dawkins we've got two artists three artists and hanks beyonce and jay-z who else we have in there maybe we need somebody king stephen king
0: yeah who Uh, would definitely be able to write a good account of this
1: (laughs) Yeah. So would you, would you support that as like, make, it takes s- us back to where we were, where you were saying you have this, this political figure, like the, like president slash King Krishnamurti right. who, who <laughs> mandates that there will be this festival. There will be this, this, uh, the showering of psychedelics. Mm. Would you say, no, look, we'll, we'll go an opposite way. We'll have a middle ground. It's not the bottom up. It's not the top down. It's a middle ground where we, we will kidnap these people and, and force this on them. Would that be, would that kidnapping become a justifiable act uh-huh. it, to force them into transformation where their influence would then be uh, in a different direction?
0: Right. Right. And, and is the thought here then that these people, because of their prominence or whatever, they could influence, uh, you know, people would take them more seriously or whatever uh, they, they would yes
1: they would be they would be te- telling people to take the experience m- more seriously because we we didn't talk we talked a little bit last encounter about what people would be experiencing but my sense is they'd be experiencing the oneness of all of life this is the point where we didn't really get into this but right. we we were assuming it about the health safety and longevity of the planet and the species where people say we are all one We're all one consciousness. There isn't any more than one. There isn't any different from one. You will realize that and you will see that all of humanity is worth loving and cherishing. We completely have to revamp how we're thinking about this planet and our species and how we treat one another. So these influencers are saying this. Uh, Does that make the act of kidnapping and forcing and compelling them to take the drug does it make it somehow justifiable yeah not okay. that it's not that it's explainable
0: right but, but it's is justifiable it, yes i get where you're going so okay the this is interesting to me for a couple of different and, and let
1: reasons. me just let me just say I, I mentioned it because of what you said about michael Pollan, right 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 who right, who, who had to, had let's be honest to write a good book had to merge his uh, exterior with his interior he had to undergo the experience himself yes right? so that's what i'm saying for them to appreciate this exterior danger that we're in they have to undergo this interior experience
0: yes yes and it just calls to mind something from i mean you've written about this but i think i think you may have really borrowed it from ken Wilbur's work, the idea of the injunction, right, to undertake a first person investigation into an experience that can't really be communicated so that you can have a sense of whether it's, you know, what it's like for yourself or not, right? So it's a similar, I think it's kind of a similar thing here. It's like for Pollen, and this is why I I was never, I never had a strong opinion about him one way or another, but when he, when I read that book and he framed his inquiry in this way, I just had a tremendous amount of respect for him because there's a certain honesty there evidenced there. I think where he's like, yeah, look, the only way I can write uh, with any sense of um, certainty about this topic is to actually undergo the experience myself. So anyway, setting that aside, this question about kidnapping the five, this you know gilligan's island or whatever of uh psychedelica that we're gonna do uh yeah i mean on the one hand so it connects with what we were saying before like where i the whole notion of this sprang for me from this this thought this jokey sort of thought experiment i had of like let's douse the whole planet in lsd or aerosolized psilocybin just blast it hit earth from space with a, with a heroic dose of psychedelics. So everybody's doing it at the same time. Well, we can't do that as we discussed before, because then you're going to affect babies. You're going to affect people who may have psychotic breaks and you're also just violating, you know, basic notions of consent. Uh, This scenario that you've put forth is a little different because it's more limited um it's more targeted yeah targeted yeah literally and more sort of uh there's a little more finesse you know we're gonna have like perhaps the world premiere trip guide marianne williamson or whomever uh you know assisting these people we could even do it under the aegis of you know johns hopkins and their experiments or whatever So in other words, it's going to be less harmful. We could argue it would be less harmful and less damaging, potentially damaging. And moreover, the benefits, given that these are extraordinarily influential people who could, you know, accelerate public awareness and cultural consciousness, sort of like to a tipping point, maybe more quickly. So maybe the benefits outweigh the potential harms. But before we even, before I even think about that more, what I think is we, something we have to deal with is whether or not this process always entails harm. In other words, is harm ineliminable from the process? And my My hunch is to say, yes, (laughs) it's always painful and we might even be able to characterize it as violent. So I'm thinking of something. Have you ever seen the movie they live by John Carpenter? No. So it's an obscure 1980s movie starring Rowdy Roddy Piper, who was a, you know, he was the rock before the rock was the rock. He was a former professional wrestler who got into acting and there's the whole premise of the movie is that uh, that well I'll just spoil it for you because you're never gonna watch it, but <laughs> aliens have taken over or maybe they always took over the planet, and they use sophisticated forms of propaganda and mind control to uh con- you know control the human population. Well, there's these magic or sort of special sunglasses you can put on that enable you to see the propaganda for what it is. So instead of a billboard with an advertisement, it says, you know, uh, get married and have kids or just obey or consume, consume, consume. So what we might characterize as being capitalist propaganda, just bluntly revealed. And moreover, when you wear these sunglasses, you can see the people who are actually aliens, you know, in disguise. Okay. Now I bring this up not so much because that aspect of it is important. Although I think it is kind of relevant, but more so that the, and Slavoj Zizek has talked about this in uh, the perverts guide to cinema documentary that he did, which I highly recommend checking out as well. But he, there's a pivotal fight scene in that movie where there's one guy who's friends with another guy and the first guy refuses to put on the sunglasses and see for himself the aliens and the propaganda uh, and all this kind of stuff. And the other guy, because he has become close friends with this first guy, so it's coming from like a place of love starts beating the shit out of him basically to force him to put the sunglasses on starts off nicely, you know, come on, man, put the sunglasses on. I'm telling you the, everything will change. You'll see, you know, the reality of things and blah, blah, blah. And the guy doesn't want any parts of it. uh, He's resisting. And then, you know, it escalates, it escalates. And they start physically fighting until they finally beat the shit out of each other. And, The second guy literally, you know, puts the sunglasses on the first guy's face and makes him look. So I bring that up because I think it's the same kind of thing. So in that case, it's at least as Zizek argues, it's more about ideology and gaining class consciousness, right? So it's about the proletarian as represented by the guy who refuses to put glasses on being sort of liberated by, let's just say, the figurative Karl Marx putting the glasses on and saying, look, this is the, this is the reality of your position in the world as well as the class uh, of which you are a part. In the same sense, I would say that although we maybe can mitigate and reduce the amount of harm and violence that is involved in this sort of transformation of consciousness and perception i think it's always going to be present so the question is you know how how can we best mitigate and reduce it and what is the what are the best practices for inflicting that harm and that violence in the appropriate ways so that they you know so that it's it produces the outcome and is also you know, not something that drives somebody into like a schizoid break from reality. So I don't know. I guess I could continue, but do you have, what do you, do you have a response to that? Like I'm saying, in other words, that this group, this group of celebrities that we've kidnapped, they're going to be harmed. Yes. And I think that it could be justifiable if that is, beneath the threshold of harm that you think is necessary at or beneath the amount of harm that you think is necessary. So in other words, I think harm is necessary. It's ineliminable to this process. Does kidnapping and sort of coercing these people to undergo this experience fall at or below the necessary threshold? Well, the kidnapping seems to place it above but then, for me, I would, I would maybe try to balance that personal, those personal harms, against the collective benefit, and say, well, these are rich people; they'll get over it. <laughs> like, they'll they'll recover from this temporary kidnapping where they got to hang out with Jay Z, uh, and they'll be just fine. And so, it's worth it. I yep. guess that's my thought. Yeah. Uh, well, I think you're you're
1: right about the harm just just from the get-go we can see it we're kidnapping people obviously taking them (laughs) against their will and we are imposing on them the ingesting of a drug again against their will if what we think is accurate the outcome of the experience will be according to what we know from the results of these experiments will be salutary but th- the process itself won't be so we've got three kinds of harm: the kidnapping a violation of, of rights and autonomy the uh, compulsion to take the drug violation of rights and autonomy and the experience while on the drug, which is, is not, there isn't any way it can only be good. Right. I think I told you when I was, <clears throat> I had applied to be a subject in a, in a psilocybin experiment at Johns Hopkins, they were looking for long-term meditators uh, and they wanted to see the effect the, the, the drug had on attitudes and outlook. Of people who've been meditating for a while and i went through i got as far as the interview and i was being interviewed and at one point the interviewer said are you prepared for bouts of uncontrollable laughing and uncontrollable crying i, and I said yeah well but clearly it, dude <laughs> <laughs> I <was> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well clearly our five six however many we've got uh influencers aren't being asked that right we don't care whether they're prepared they're going to get it so that could be another form of harm within the experience so we've got these different kinds of harm but it's not unlike um a surgeon a surgeon is doing harm when a surgeon operates on you there isn't any any way around it as you said it's it's uh it's it's ineluctable you can't you can't avoid it okay but is the harm worth undertaking because of the benefit of the outcome that's where we are right right so is there any other way we could do it yes we could try to convince them we could try to use if oprah's on our side try to use oprah to convince them to do this uh maybe that's the first step but failing that we decide because of the because of what we know will be the the ultimate outcome of this experience. And because we then can see what it will do for the benefiting humanity, mm. it's well worth it to undertake yes. this. Uh, yeah. That that's, yeah. As far as I, I've gotten.
0: No, that's good. That's good. Because then I was thinking like, for me, the, how I would begin to justify this uh, would be against the backdrop of the urgency. Right. So, so it, in thinking about this whole the idea we were discussing before about doing a global psychedelic experience or whatever, the backdrop for that for me is the urgency with which we need to transform human consciousness so that we don't fucking obliterate ourselves within the next few decades, or at least that we obliterate fewer of ourselves uh, during that time. So like that that's how I would and. You know, I'm thinking you could maybe make an argument, and I'm a little rusty on this, but I think I recall, maybe you can clean it up for me if I get something wrong, but isn't it in Mills on Liberty when he talks about someone not being in their right mind, like a guy who is dead set on crossing a a bridge that's about to collapse, or maybe he's just ignorant of the fact that the bridge is about to collapse. And I think this is when Mills articulating the harm principle and he's like, look, you could intervene and tackle this guy or, or whatever to stop him from going on the bridge. Because if he knew what you knew, he would want you to tackle him. Right. Something like this. Right. Okay. So we could, maybe that's one pathway by which we could make an argument to say, yeah, right now, Jay-Z is not going to want you to kidnap him and take him to some place, un, you know, undisclosed location and force him to take drugs. Or maybe he would, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, that's right. He would say, <laughs> you don't have to force me. You could have just
1: asked. Yeah. I would have like, happily gone along.
0: Best surprise birthday party ever. <laughs> like, uh, but but if he if he knew what you knew and if he were in his right mind then he would gladly undergo the experience. So for me, I guess I could say like, if, if what is motivating me to think that this is justifiable, namely the existential urgency of initiating this mass transformation of consciousness, if I can get others to see that that is the case, then they too will agree. Yeah. You know, we should do this because it's necessary. In other words, they could, but I mean, this is, you know, this is presupposing a lot, obviously, and putting, it's necessarily putting yourself into the position of, I know better than you, you know, that, but that's the whole, that's the whole premise of the, right. And so that's a positive claim that I, that we would make and not shy away from, right? We do know better, uh, and it's not so much that we don't know or that we know better. It's that you don't yet know better yourself, although you can in just a few minutes if you take this or whatever. Right. Well, but, this
1: I can't remember actually why I introduced this. What yes. the context was for introducing this idea, <laughs> but but it's it's significant because you're not going to stop. If it's effective, why would you stop with five? Why wouldn't you keep going right. with these influencers? Because the hope is that at some point, you don't have to kidnap and force them any longer, that their influence is so significant that people are now clamoring for this experience, right? Uh, and so you'd want to have some endpoint to it. But this notion that uh, I know better than you do, is unsettling <laughs> because just of the of the rampant paternalism that's built into it yes so it's different from saying i know more than you know you're saying i know better than you what you need to do <laughs> so then you say okay well then if it's the i know more that's like mill with a man on the bridge if you know more Share with me what you know that's more than what I know. And at that point, if I still want to go across the bridge, I think this is part of Mill's argument. Mill said he can be convinced that let the man go. Right. Okay. So in the same scenario, you'd be saying to Neil deGrasse Tyson, here's what I know you understand on an intellectual level the precarity of the planet and the species at this moment but i'm not convinced that you feel it you know it but you don't feel it because i don't see you in your life doing lots of things to help further the health of the species and the planet
0: right and mo- perhaps most simply you're not saying and you're, you're not, not talking yeah, yeah you're that's not speaking one of the right truth you know yeah
1: that's one of the things you're not talking about it yeah. it's got to be talked about so i think it's important for you to feel it and i can help i can help you feel it now at that point the hope is he would go all right what do you have in mind right uh, or he'd say keep away from me you lunatic i don't want to feel that if he says no, says no do we then say I'm sorry. It's no longer your choice. <laughs> right. We gave you the choice, but now it's not. So is that is that the the acceptable, justifiable st- uh, stages where you say you know more. You give him the more. He still says no. And then you say, but I know better. Not I know better. I not I know better for you. Although I think that's part of it, but I know better for the planet mm. and the species. What has to be done? Yeah. I guess this brings us back to the mandate from President Krishnamurti that there will be <laughs> these festivals, and you will attend.
0: <laughs> yes, but there can also be varying levels to it. I, I, if we stick with the festival thing. Like, I, I, my initial thought, because you raised this whole kidnapping scenario, not right. me. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm just saying, my, I, I do, and that's, you know, that's why when I did originally bring this up, I was rooting it in like your discussion of, you know, helping to cultivate autonomy in students in a classroom and the role of the teacher and whether, It's justifiable to sort of impose that kind of development, et cetera, et cetera, because that is the whole idea of coercion here is like very problematic on multiple levels, I think. And I want to sidestep it to the extent possible. So I think there could be like levels of persuasion and attempts to influence that ultimately stop short of coercion. And if we stick with the, the example of the bridge from Mill, it's like once I am satisfied that the person is adequately informed of the reality of the bridge being about to collapse or you know whatever it might be, then it's at that point that you let the person go. And you stop and you don't coerce them. The only time I would coerce, the only time I would say otherwise, I guess, would be as if there's just not enough time to adequately inform them, which arguably you could say there's not enough time, the ecological crisis, to adequately inform everyone such that they would voluntarily undergo this. Like, it's just such a deep, you could spend a lifetime trying to inform one person of this, you know, and not succeed. So like there is that concern, but I guess just to add something else to this is, I think given the amount of people in the world, we can afford to say, eh, fuck you, Tyson, you're out. (laughs) We don't want you anyway. Like, we'll just move on to the next people. Like, yes, it would be nice to have somebody inf- as influential as Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson on our side. But if he's not in and he can't be persuaded, I'm not going to coerce him. And right. You know what I mean? So we could reach whatever 10% of the population. I can, I mean, I'm gonna make a bold claim, but I would guarantee that 10% of the U S population would be very receptive to the idea of, <laughs> being provided with free psychedelics that they could consume without any possibility of punishment or penalty but whatever that number may be even if it's only one percent that's still thousands upon thousands of people who we don't have to coerce we don't have to you know whatever they're they they're just waiting for this opportunity that's the target it's much like really with extinction rebellion we weren't our messaging wasn't to persuade some Trumpster climate denier in Kentucky, that the feedback loops, planetary feedback loops are accelerating exponentially. And therefore our personal, the chronology of our personal lives is intersecting with the chronology of deep time, planetary history, such that we're now living through, you know, a fulcrum point, like, Ourselves, yeah, in planetary history, uh, you know that that's we're in, we're aiming at the people who are ready to hear that message. Yeah. well, know. the the ten percent
1: is important. We talked last encounter about the study that I had read done by social psychologists. I think I'm not sure, um, showing that if you can get ten percent of a population to accept a belief. And are, that 10% is willing to, to um, militate on behalf of that belief that the, the change in others, the 90% is like a, like a fire now sweeping across Oregon. It's, it's almost it's unstoppable, almost right. unstoppable. And I think that's a good point that you don't need to address, you don't need to get into scenarios where you are violating Uh, rights and autonomy, that there are, there are these intermediate steps all along the way where you have to assess the harm you're doing, which may, which may not be necessary. It it may be necessary to get that single person to do this experience, but it may not be necessary to do that to that single person. Uh, But yeah, I think that that should give us pause and it does and give everybody pause to think that it's okay to commit harm for what you think is a greater good, neglecting to see the nature of the means you're using to get to that end.
0: Mm. And
1: so I think the way you looked at it and brought it to the 10% is a, way, a good way of diffusing this notion that if we just kidnap the most important people in the world and put them through this experience, it'd be well worth the violations yeah, right. I don't think that. I, yeah, there, there's just there, as you say, there's too much harm involved in that.
0: There's too much harm, and I think you know it could maybe backfire or whatever. Plus, there's we could assemble a different uh, crew of people again who would just readily accept that invitation and wouldn't have to be well, harmed. Yeah, you know, Joe already, Rogan, for example. Yeah, we've know?
1: already got Oprah helping us. So, so <laughs> I mean, right. So imagine if you can get—I don't know who the most you know if muhammad ali had been around yeah there are these figures around the world who are revered
0: right transcendent yeah, yeah. i don't know that uh, there's really anybody like muhammad ali anymore you know michael uh, jackson prince they're all dead like people that had global profiles like that. yeah and were beloved you know and
1: we're beloved yeah maybe Yeah, i'm sure there are some that we're not thinking of but I I had a context for bringing this up, which I completely lost when when you and I got into this scenario. Oh, okay. Which came out of Michael Pollan. I don't remember what it was. We'll have to go back. I'll have to go back and listen and say, oh yeah, that was the moment. Oh, here's what I was thinking. <laughs> but I can't clarify that for
0: several weeks. <laughs> right, because we're dropping off the face of the earth. We're yes, getting kidnapped right. ourselves. Yeah, because <laughs>
1: we're going through our own experiences of various kinds, which we'll report
0: back to you all. Yes, definitely. Well, very helpful food for thought uh, for all these things that I'm thinking about, and this notion of consent, and the sort of the means by which we can sidestep that, I think is is going to animate much of my thinking and writing. You on mean this that you can do it or can't do it? I think you can, I think I'm sort of start that because that's kind of my premise or my starting point is like, like I said, I want to just douse the whole planet uniformly and unannounced (laughs) with LSD. I can't do that. So build backwards from that, uh, overcoming this, what I think is probably the most significant hurdle if we set aside practical concerns, which is this notion of something like consent or, or not inflicting harm. On others, right? I think it just seems yeah, to be I, so central to the the whole thing.
1: Yes. Minimizing um, harm, I guess I, I should say. Minimizing harm, but that I'm slightly alarmed by your saying the ways you can you can
0: imagine bypassing consent. <laughs> no, I mean I what I mean by that is. Uh, not you know like being like Bill Cosby or something. <laughs> I mean, making it a rendering it a non-issue because we, instead we recruit volunteers, <laughs> informed volunteers. Right. Okay. Because, because I was there's gonna no, say it,
1: yeah. <laughs> for me, that's that's the starting place. Yes. I mean, if if I if I value autonomy, then I have to value consent because autonomy rests on the notion of self-determination self-authorship of our lives right it's a complete violation right (laughs) to ignore consent and say for the for the greater good you're going to do this okay well i'm relieved to hear that you're not thinking that way
0: yeah no that's not what i'm thinking i'm saying that you know that would be a huge and insurmountable hurdle and therefore we have to find a different path and i think that that path can be found okay know. so
1: well I will I will be eager to listen to this encounter to figure out what the hell I was thinking about with the kidnapping issue.
0: Yeah, likewise. Uh, and bring it up next time. Well, I'll do that, months, but as I said, it, it'll be a while.
1: Yes. Uh, but you uh, listeners stay safe there. Delta the Delta variant is running around
0: naked. <laughs> yes. So keep your distance. Yeah, wear bring your masks out of storage, folks. Exactly. All right, until next Our- time.
1: we Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week?